welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Harvey Asher, sexaholic, and sexually sober, um, <laughs> lost count here, 37 years and 11 months today, and um, one day at a time. I'm I'm not going to do the fifth step and fifth tradition connection in a way that I'm used to doing it. Because what we usually talk about are the exact nature of our wrongs and how it's connected by admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. And in the tradition of Tradition 5, where we're talking about, let me get it here, exact wordage, Tradition 5, each group has one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. What do you mean, Harvey? You're not going to talk about exact nature of our wrongs and and our primary purpose. How do you not talk about it? Because when I read it this time, I realized there is an unbelievable deeper theme so deep I never saw it before the theme is about the importance of admitting who the hell I am If I can't admit I'm a sexaholic, how then do I acknowledge the primary purpose of the meeting being sexaholism? Why not talk about eating disorders or alcohol? And if I can't admit to God, myself, and the other human being, that I'm a sexaholic. Wow, what a mess. And so we're going to go on our Broadway tour guide again. (laughs) And we're going to play a Broadway song again. And Daniel, 
Maestro. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So, come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. to hide in life's not worth a jam till you can say hey world I am what I am I am what I am I don't want praise I don't want pity I bang my own drum. Some think it's noise. I think it's pretty. And so what if I love each feather and each spangle? Why not try to see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout out loud, I am what Just so moved. Can you imagine if Roy, our founder, in 1976, didn't say to the world, I am a sexaholic? Most of us could be dead. And then, for those of you who aren't too aware of it, there was another role. 
Our founder, Roy, came in 1976 in California. But there was a Roy from Nashville, Tennessee in 1983, 84, who brought me into SA and who subsequently relapsed but finally came back years later, and he died yesterday. If that man had not come to an AA meeting and said, I'm a sexaholic, and I wouldn't have heard about sexaholism, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be dead from AIDS. We're told the importance of admitting to God ourselves and another human being and the primary purpose of our meetings being about sexaholism. And yet, the amount of you all who live still in the closet, afraid to let people know you're in recovery, afraid you'll be kicked out of your communities and excommunicated. The fear of that depth of the fifth step and fifth tradition. And the closet includes the denial to yourself that you are not a normal person. Normal people can handle lust. They don't end up in covered up, locked up, or sobered up. <laughs> Alternate. So many people in this program in recovery who say they're sober continue to live the old double life. I can't imagine, except I do imagine, as I've been around the world all over, of how many people who are in the program for years have never told their family. I once had this sponsee and he was called to another country where his relative was living, who was in big time trouble from sexual addiction. And I said to my sponsor, oh, are you going to let him know you're in the program? And he said, oh no, I can't do that. It will get back to my family. At that 
exact millisecond. Even though he might have had a year or two sobriety, I knew he was gone. He was gone. I am what I am. A sexaholic who needs to admit to God, to myself, and to another human being. And I can't play around with it at a group level. I spoke to someone the other day. I didn't know who he was from another country. And after 27 minutes, you know, nowadays you see it on your, your phone. I had no idea, even though I had shared with him my activities, even though I kept asking him, how does your disease manifest? The closest word he could use was it. And finally, I surrendered. I said, I'm not a dentist. And you wonder why I keep questioning if people actually ever believe they have a illness. Now, I'm so old that I could remember visiting my grandmother and her neighbor. This might have been in the early 1940s. And her neighbor had cancer. And how you couldn't even say the word. It was too taboo to say. And my uncle, who had to be sent to a sanitarium, back then they had no treatment for tuberculosis. And it was all hush-hush. Admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being. And what is the primary purpose? You know, in, in tr the traditions, they don't lecture us. They tell us stories. And Bill W. went to help this man out. And the man was convinced he was trying to sell him religion. And he said, I already have my religion. That's what you're trying to do. You're an evangelist. And luckily, Bill was able to tell him his story. And he said, why are you doing this, Bill? You must be getting paid. There must be a gimmick. And he said, no. I'm doing it so I could stay sober today.
1984. I was, and luckily I continued, a well-known professional in my community, Nashville. And there were just two of us. I went to the treatment centers that I was consultants at and broke my anonymity. I could have lost everything. But I didn't break my anonymity at the level of press, radio, and TV. I broke it one-to-one, saying, here is our essay brochure. We had no book. There was no essay book. It was that a brochure with the solution and the problem and the test questions. And in recovery, I've had to go through seven, diff- seven different in-laws and let them know I'm in the program, especially my in-laws who would nudist. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> One of my sons once called us and he said, Dad, Mom, you're not going to believe it, but I think I'm going to marry a woman who's from a more dysfunctional family than we have. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, They're nudists. <laughs> And every time we go and be with them, they'd invite us to their nudist country club. And I have to say to them, no way. <laughs> but what would I say to them? I understand this is your support group. You get a lot from it. I have my SAAA support group. I live in a retirement center with a hundred people. We all eat together. I'm always disappearing on the phone or this and that or saying I gotta talk to you. And they say what it's about. <laughs> And I give them simple answers, but then I'll just actually say the words, A-A-S-A. I had a, we had neighbors. We were living in a fairly, you know, uh, not a very expensive neighborhood, but they kept seeing one Time we're off to Australia, another time we're off to Europe, another time we're off to Asia. What are you doing? How do you go to all those places? (laughs) And I would tell them the simple truth. My sponsor would teach us addicts either lie 
or they get diarrhea of the mouth. It's called the simple truth. And many of you have heard this story because about a year, year and a half ago, in one of the essay articles I discussed. So we were asked to speak at the convention in Salt Lake City. And after the conference, we went to the Mormon Tabernacle. And we took a tour. And they, at the end, in front of the whole group, the tour guide said, and why are you here in Salt Lake City? And I said, oh, we're at a conference. Simple truth. And he said, what kind of conference? I said, a recovery conference. Simple truth. He said, what kind of recovery conference? I said, a 12-step recovery conference. Simple truth. And then in front of all these people, he said, what kind of 12-step recovery conference? And in a loud voice, I said, Sexaholics Anonymous. And he said, thank God. I have been trying to get a hold of this group and I can't get the phone number. It's for a friend of mine. Can you give me the number? <laughs> we talk all this bull about trusting God. We don't mean a bit of it. Or you wouldn't be so frightened. You let God talk through you through the simple truth and let go of the results. There was one group, one country we went to, they locked the door after you walk into the meeting. So no one could come in. Oh, I'll get excommunicated, I'll get this, I'll get that. You don't worry about that when you're with some prostitute. Why am I so passionate on this subject? Because this is how I was taught that this is not some secret occult society. It is a fellowship of men and women who share the experience, strength, and hope. Now, if you notice, I did not give that man my entire story. I told them the simple truth. 
you know, I I had four teenage sons when I came in the program. And over the years, I had to tell them I, they want to know a little more, three of the four did. Or they went to treatment centers and talked. And I had a style. I didn't tell them my story. I read them the problem from the essay brochure. And I said, if you want to know me, this is me. And I read them the problem. You know, where we read the problem, the solution, I read them the problem. So one day, my son, he must have been in his 30s at the time, brought this gorgeous gal home, amazing woman. And, uh, you know, in my family, we're short. <laughs> this son, man, he brought home a model. <laughs> and we're sitting in the room in, in, in our little den with her and my wife and my son out of nowhere. My son says, Dad, why are you an essay? And I said, son, you want me to say this in front of your girlfriend? And he said, yes. I said, excuse me, I'll go upstairs and get a brochure. <laughs> he said, no, I don't want you to read from that brochure. I want to know why. <laughs> I thought I'd die. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy was already crawled under the couch, you know. <laughs> and I stopped and I prayed. I said, God, you talk for me. And out of my mouth came my qualifier. I believe I'm Harvey Asher, a sexaholic. I believe I was born this way. I was a compulsive masturbator. I had too much sex with your mother. And I was promiscuous, predominantly gay. And I shut my mouth. You could hear a pin drop. The silence was deafening. And all of a sudden I said, if you have any further questions, you could ask me. I might not answer them all, but you could ask me. And all of a sudden my son, this grown man, started to cry. And he said, Dad, I'm so proud of what you've done with your life. Well, 
My sponsor would say he has never had anyone lose respect for his recovery, but he has had so many people lose respect for him and his active disease. So when we do the tradition, and as Bill Lurk with this guy in Tradition 5, he wasn't talking to him about morality. He wasn't talking to him about religion. He was talking about his experience, strength, and hope, his primary purpose. was that he was an alcoholic. But man, you come to an SA meeting, it's one of the few subjects that never come up. Lust. And if it comes up, people convert it. Oh, I got lust for cars. And I got lust for money. Lust. People want to talk about anything but our primary purpose that we are allergic to lust and our lives become unmanageable. Now, as you know, I'm not talking for essay. I'm talking about my own personal individual experience, strength, and hope. But if any of you have heard old timers in this program, like Sylvia, you will hear the truth. She does not tiptoe about what her disease did to her. I do not tiptoe about around what my disease has done to me. My youngest two sons at the time, I was paying for apartments for guys especially and ran out of money and couldn't send two of my sons to college. And I was a high paid professional person. But decades later, I was able in recovery to send my sons through more classes and one at graduate school. Now, that man, my son, about a year later, we were walking down the street of Manhattan, and out of nowhere in front of my wife, 
He says, Dad, did you have sex with this guy and that guy and this guy? He starts naming men. And after a few, I was able to look at him and say my simple truth after I answered a few of them. Son, I'm getting uncomfortable now, and I really don't want to talk about this anymore. That's also my simple truth. I could keep my head up high and say that to him. That's I'm not living in shame and guilt. That's I truly believe. I was so out of it from all that endorphins, how it affected my judgment. That it was not me, it was my addiction. But if I don't admit to myself, to God and to another human being, I cannot acknowledge I'm an addict. And most people who have problems in this program have very short memories. As soon as the major issues disappear, they believe they're cured. I will never be cured because I have a incurable chronic progressive illness, and yet I don't actively lust today. So I'm going to end this part about this son again. This son was married and had a baby and we were naming the child and the parking lot where we were naming the child, the house of worship. All of a sudden he looked at me and he said, Dad, this woman showed up on Facebook I used to date. And I went to visit her. And I looked him in the eye and I said, son, you did more than just visit her. I see it in your eyes. <laughs> and I gave him a test. And he was not responding as a sex addict. And he started telling us stories that were inconceivable what he had been living with for years. And I, he said, Dad, don't tell anyone. And I said, I need to tell your mom. I lived a life of lying to her. I can't keep this. And he said, okay. And a few days, but I won't say anything. <clears throat> and a few days later, 
I went to made an amend. I said, son, I really screwed up, but I called my sponsor for advice. And he said, oh, I knew you'd call your sponsor. I wasn't thinking about him. <laughs> And my sponsor said, Harvey, I lived with this woman for decades. And luckily, someone showed up in my life that helped me get out of the marriage. And he was married 35 years to this new woman. And she was at Gem, just wonderful in the programs. And I decided to be supportive of my son. And I helped him walk through a very difficult divorce. Why am I telling you this? Because if I hadn't been as open with him on his request, at his request, I don't believe he would have been able to share with me what he shared. The more secrets, the more insanity. Doesn't mean we shout it from the rooftops, but we don't hide from it when we could help another human being who's in discomfort at bed. Okay. Let's have about 30 minutes of questions and close and then keep another 30 minutes of questions for anyone who wants to stay long. Thanks, Harvey. So as usual, uh, if you don't want to be recorded, you can send the message to me in the chat. And let's uh, remember to keep the questions related around passing the message the fifth tradition and the fifth step, uh, sharing uh, the, the exact nature of our wrongs. And we have a question here from Israel, who is a good person. So go ahead, Israel. Hi, Avi. Thank you for everything, not only for talks. Um, can you hear me, right? Okay. The question is, I mean, uh, some, someone translated uh, anonymity in the, in the beginning of the group like a discrecy. I just, I know your answer, but I, wa I want to hear it loud. Um, there is some connection between anonymity and di discrecy, I mean, to, 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 to I don't to, understand your word. Uh, the discrecy is my—it's a name of uh, you know the keep privacy or something in secret, like like you don't say your last name or something like this. Just to, uh, to, uh, there is some connection between between uh, you know secrecy and uh, anonymity. Yeah, Israel, that's all cultural. Meaning, before we had cell phones, we only had telephone books. And if you didn't know your, a last name of a person, you could hardly call them. Sometimes you'd have to look them up. 
<laughs> in a yellow book or whatever. But it's very clear. Anonymity is at the level of press, radio, and television. Now, there are two kinds of anonymity. One we'll talk about at the beginning of the traditions. Another is at the end, the 12th. Anonymity is a spiritual foundation of our fellowship. Now, that is the key of anonymity, that we don't have blacks or whites or Jews or Christians or men or women. We have a bunch of drunks. That's the spiritual foundation. Now, there is another word that's not secrecy. It's called courtesy. You're not to talk to your wife about someone she might know at the meeting and bring back stories. That's courtesy. Regretfully, very few people do that. If you think there are secrets in this fellowship, <laughs> you're living <laughs> not in the world I'm living in. I get referrals as a professional. And I'd say, who referred you? And someone would say, oh, my brother sits at meetings with you. And he said, you'd be good for me to go to. <laughs> and for many of you, do you know how many of you all have put my YouTubes up with my last name? If I think about it too much, I'm a human being. I go into fear. <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding? There are no guarantees. Most people are drunk. They don't come back anyway. Who knows what they're saying? That's why in Nashville, we have a special reading that you do not talk about any abuse to a minor and think someone might not report you. You might be reported. Again, this is only my opinion, not anything right or wrong. Anyone has freedom to do it they want, no one could kick out. I had to make certain very existential decisions because I would work in certain settings that people would be sitting at meetings with me 
and I would make the decision to tell my bosses that I'm in recovery. This I rather than hear it from me than from someone outside who might make it their own story. At least now I don't have to worry about it. Someone that I was inappropriate with. <laughs> it's just someone I sit at meetings with. We make this a very simplistic program. Well, it is simple, but it's not that simplistic. I've had sex with so many people that they would show up at meetings. People make these big, big, giant deals. What will happen? What will this? What will that? It all passes. If I stay sober one day at a time. If not, who knows what's going to happen to me. My disease, the allergies getting worse and worse, even though you can't tell. And I can't. There are so many people with long-term recovery who have not yet decided to let go of lust. They still think it's okay. Well, nothing wrong with it, moralistically. But it's such self-delusion. What's a little bit of flirting going to do? Well, only you could answer that question. No one could tell you because you won't believe them anyway. Next question, please. Uh, go ahead, Jan. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Harvey. Um, so for me, uh, honesty and shame or uh, themes that come up a lot in uh, this step and tradition. Now, um, would you say that this uh, the step and the tradition are really um, not necessarily designed, but uh, that they are good for um, or in combating or just working against uh, that the shame factor in in our lives? That was beautifully said. Yeah. I haven't quite connected that, but I think you're right on. Every time I tell you these things that I don't want you to know about me, I get de-shamed. That's why, if you notice, I'm a guy who's highly heterosexual. Man. But yet, I'm always bringing the gay issue up first. That's, that's the piece I don't want you to know about me. So every time I'm here, I'm 
inappropriately bringing up a topic you might not even want to hear about that I had it with guys too. No, that's part of my de-shaming medication. Because it doesn't make sense. A guy who enjoys heterosexual life, who has kids, who find women attractive. Why would I need guys too? Because I have a disease. That's who I am. And it has nothing to do with gay or straight. It's about my disease. Can uh, by the way, Daniel, can you show Roy's files, that picture I sent you? Let's read a little about him. Julian, not Julian, uh, uh, Daniel, can you read what it says? Yeah, it says Roy Ronald Kulian, I hope I pronounced that right, a.k.a. Roy K., is the founder of Sexaholics Anonymous. He was born on the 1st of March, 1927 and passed away on Tuesday, September the 15th, 2009 at age 82. Roy was a resident of Simi Valley, Ventura County in California, and his spouse was Iris Bray Salway, uh, who also unfortunately passed away around eight months ago, I think. Two years after Roy died, his son and daughter-in-law and grandson had a dog on the beach and the dog ran in and the undertow took it and they went in to get the dog and both his son and his daughter and his grandson drowned. I think the dog survived. They, they drank. Can you imagine if Roy, including this, Roy was dr dramatically heterosexually oriented, and yet he had to include the term I even crossed gender bounds, boundaries. Why? because he had to admit to God, to himself, and to another human being. And I'd like us, since this is selfish program for me, I need to hear that song again, please. Give me one second, I have to put it up again. And now hear it with step five and step a uh, tradition five's ears. I am What I am, I am my own. Spirit. 
special creation. So, come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. to hide in life's not worth a damn till you can say hey world I am what I am I am what I am I don't want praise I don't want pity I bang my own drum. Some think it's noise. I think it's pretty. And so what if I love each feather and each spangle? Why not try to see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout out loud, I am what Sexaholic. I will never be anything else. And yet, I'm a good and worthwhile human being worthy of recovery today. And if it weren't for my disease, I would never have met you all. If it weren't for my disease, I would never have found a God who lives in all of you. I reviewed at a meeting this morning it was at noon. How did this happen? That I have sponge seeds who, who were from Poland and from Germany 
and from us. I mean, you name it, how did I even meet him? If I weren't who I am, I would have missed this unity we talked about in tradition one, how we're all connected. And this is one of the lessons of COVID where we can see none of us are separated. It doesn't matter which closet you hide in, there's a good chance you're gonna get COVID. This we're all interconnected through this God of our understanding one day at a time. Okay, let's uh, close and then so people could go to bed in Europe, etc. And then we can have some more questions. Do you want to lead us out with a prayer, Harvey? No, you go ahead, Daniel. The wee version of the serenity prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Your will, not ours, be done. Um, I have a question, Harvey, for you about um, this fifth tradition that um, we've heard. You know, as you know, I listen to a lot of tapes. Um, I'm very involved in the recordings. And as you probably remember, um, a couple of sims ago, when I started sending you all this crazy paperwork that you had to sign, because things got a little bit complicated. Um, and it's, you know, the fifth tradition doesn't say, um, you know, that we ought to, that we have to pass the message on to the uh, sexaholic who still suffers unless it's going to hurt the group as a whole. I mean, obviously, we don't want to hurt the group as a whole. But how do we balance that importance of, you know, from, and for me also, it's like a double-sided question because for me, I've put my name out there a lot, but not in my local community. But I get phone calls all the time from therapists from all over the place. Um, so I'm very open to carrying that message, but I think that it's so important that we have these recordings and we're able to share these recordings um, and then, you know, we've had all this kind of politics that's come up here in SA because, of, you know, we've lost two now, we've lost now two conventions that haven't been recorded because they were on Zoom and fear. So what is the balance of allowing fear to dictate the tradition? Where, what do we do? Uh, and, and, uh, and even more relevant asking it now to you after saying that serenity prayer and knowing that I, these are things I can't change really. We don't have to do anything. The program's bigger than any of us. Who do you think runs it anyway? Daniel. <laughs> My sponsor once said, 
Harvey, if someone doesn't complain about something you've said, you've been too careful speaking. <laughs> uh, Daniel brings up such an important concept of who's running SA. We have a new employer, <laughs> but we think we're running it. Who would have dreamt people staying sober from Zoom meetings? Who would have ever dreamt it? We take a human being's teacup of a brain, the finite brain, to try to figure out the infinite that's beyond time and space. So when the principle is unity, you try to work it through as best you can. Where people, you know, with no big deals. And no one can interfere with your going to 12-step a doctor or someone. That's up to you. Well, let me tell you, I'm kind of had to learn to lay back with all this. But these talks aren't for the wives of sexaholics. And yet many people let their wives listen to these talks. There's nothing I can do about it. So I don't even have to bother with it. Because I can control nothing. If I could, I wouldn't have gotten COVID. I took the three shot. <laughs> Not only do people play it to their wives, they play it to their aunts and uncles. <laughs> their kids. There's a, a family in another country we went to visit, gave a talk there. And they had a lot of kids and they invited all their kids to the dinner they had for Nancy and me. All their kids, they were young kids, had heard my talks. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> I'll tell you what I could do. I have a choice. I could live in fear that my great-grandchildren and my grandchildren are going to hear some of my explicit sharing. Or I could say, may thy will be done, not my will. May thy will be done.
if we really trusted God, we wouldn't have all these <laughs> complex prayers which say, may thy will be done. Not my will, thy will. But, you know, I get a kick out of talking like this <laughs> because it's taken me years and years to get to a point where I did not say, God, help me get better from COVID. May thy will be done, not my will. Next question. Go ahead, Hadassah. Harvey, thank you so much. Um, so my question is, I was in a position where I was with a newcomer who was struggling tremendously, but that newcomer also was a really close friend of my spouse. And he asked me specifically not to disclose um, that I'm a sexaholic. And I'm just wondering in that kind of situation, if I know that this person can really get help if I guide them or, you know, help them get to meetings in their area because it seemed that they didn't know really much. Or do I listen to my husband as a living amends to the pain I caused him and keep my mouth shut? So I'm just curious what your answer would be on that. So you want to know should... You let her know you're in the program because you want a 12-stepper? Um, it was, yeah, it was somebody who was a good friend of my husband's, and he was talking about struggling in the program, not knowing where meetings were in his neighborhood, etc. And my husband had specifically asked me before he came not to disclose that I was two in SA. And I felt very conflicted between helping this person who was really struggling versus respecting my spouse's request to not disclose that I was in program as well. Mm. I can't get into marital issues <laughs> because this is much more than sexual addiction. This has to deal with codependency, with working each other's programs, just too, too complex. Uh, however, there are times I have to say, perhaps when this comes up, I'm going to respect it this time, but please never say that to me again. My wife describes it beautifully because that's, that's how her Esnon, I mean, her Alanon sponsored taught her. Our program are like a railroad track. Each rail goes parallel, and there are these ties that hold them together, but they go parallel. But let 
one rail cross over the other and there'll be a train truck wreck. You can't work his program, he can't work your program. Um, he's, he's gonna need whatever help he can to deal with his spouse issues like most of our spouses have had. I kept giving my wife venereal diseases. Luckily, we're married over 60 years now. A lot of this depends on recovery. And a lot of it depends on the dance. There are some marriages that don't make it when one of the people gets sober. The dance gets too, too disrupted. So I've learned I know very little about the dynamics of the dance between husband and wife. I do understand your predicament. Luckily, I was so ill that my recovery had to come before my wife, my children, my religion, and my God. If my recovery did not take priority, that I had no chance to keep any of those. Okay, we have a question in the chat. How do I keep a meeting healthy when I notice that they're not following the traditions or the meeting guidelines without sounding like the bleeding deacon I seem to be the only one who makes these suggestions. We do now read the traditions, but that's not always enough. My prayer, God, keep my mouth shut. <laughs> you bring it up once, you let it go. And if it's too uncomfortable, you find another meeting to go to. where they follow traditions. But many people don't understand the traditions because it's not one of the main things we tend to deal with. And so naturally, it would be nice to have some workshops, an extra meeting or two for people who'd like to learn more about the traditions. There is a real problem people just can't 
it's hard for people to grasp. Most people at a meeting usually are drunk. They can't hear what you're saying anyway. They might be technically sober, but they come to the rooms and they're flirting and they're daydreaming and they're But there's one person in that meeting who can be totally sober from lust and acting out that day. And that's me. And I don't have to get my recovery only through to other people have recovered. There's hardly anyone left in SA when I came in. Other than Sylvia and one other person, my recovery, I need everyone in that meeting, but those chairs always fill in. How do I know that? If I'm 12 stepping, there'll always be people to come to that meeting. So a lot of this has to do with that word we don't like very much, our codependency. I can't tell you how many sponsees I fired, they fired me, or they died, or something happened. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But I'm still here. Because I'm not going to act out today if my ass falls off. The other day, I, you know, I was with my COVID and my stuff, and I've been going to meetings. It was Sunday morning, and I went to basically a brand new meeting up somewhere in an area that I usually never go to, and it was wonderful. The program is a power greater than me. Elaine? Yeah, hi. Thank you. Hi, Harvey and everybody. Um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a different question, but I think it's not bad to, to ask. Um, you know, in the big book, there's always they say uh, we are recovered from a disease. I mean, that, that is a question do you have perhaps often, but... I mean, recovered. And on the on the other hand, it's it's not a contradiction to say no. It's uh, this disease is I can not, never really recover from it because I, when I got back to it, I am dead in a way. But why they say it, they are recovered is because after the ninth step, you know, I think they 
progress not perfection because the spiritual journey never ends so one thing's talking about recovery of a hopeless state of mind and body but another aspect of this is the exact nature of our wrongs how do i keep growing in For me, what does exact nature my wrongs mean? It means selfishness, self-centeredness. That is the core of my problems today. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. <coughs> We step on the toes of others and they retaliate. That's me. What I am. I am what I am. <laughs> Again, I want to share in this. As you know, I say things over and over. Why? As my sponsor said, Harvey, how did you learn the multiplication table? You did two times two, two times three, over and over for years through repetition. By the time I got to the eighth table, I still don't know my eighth table very well. I never I repeated it as much. And my sponsor would say, this is a program of repetition. We want to hear these things over and over. Over and over over. I am selfish and self-centered, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking. If you have not actually written down a hundred forms of fear, let's say, or get close to it, it is so enlightening for me to see how fear permeates my life. And lust and masturbation was one of the ways that calmed down my restless, irritable, and discontented. Most of us probably aren't producing certain chemicals in our brain. That's why many of us have multiple addictions. I can't tell you the feeling, you know, when you're sick or whatever, to be able to say, okay, God, if this is a day I'm going to go, great. I'd like some extra time, perhaps. I want to do a little more meditation. 
<laughs> but I'm full of greed. I always want more. But the repetition is, I have an incurable, progressive, chronic allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. And I'm working a lot with my sponsees who aren't so involved in their lust obsessions, but still involved in so many other obsessions. Buying things, certain preoccupations, certain over and over. And one obsession will ultimately take you back to another obsession. And that's one of the criteria I've been letting a lot of people go who I've loved and sponsored for years and years because I got to a point to realize I'm not going to budge someone's obsessions. It's been some of the most freeing experiences past few months for me to accept I cannot change any sponsee. I cannot make one sponsee get better. I have trouble getting me better. I'm going to make you better. What egocentricity on my part. No, people change when they've hit their bottom. They're willing to change. They're not going to change otherwise. Only took me in recovery 30 more, 30 or more years to stop watching TV news and reading newspapers. I had to reach a bottom. No sponsor could have made me do it. It wouldn't have worked. I had to reach a bottom. Okay, we have seven more minutes. Oh, Arthur, go ahead. Thank you. Um, am I correct if I understand the fifth step and fifth tradition um, is more about listening to others than telling them? So if it, I I'd like to write it in my curriculum vitae that I'm a sexaholic. I'd like to tell my wife's parents that I'm a sexaholic um, or any other guy or woman I come across. But I, where is where's the point of anonymity for, for me, for others? Where I don't want to be careless but I want to be honest. So is it right if I understand this step as more listening to others? So if someone comes to me and asks me um, and less talking about myself. 
we confuse details with honesty. Details are not what people are asking for usually. It's usually very simple. You're with your in-laws and you're at dinner and all of a sudden you say, excuse me, everyone, I need to go to a meeting. And rarely will someone even ask what kind of meeting it is. But let's say they ask. Oh, I go to this spiritual meeting. Oh, okay. Now, if they want to know more, you could say, and you could tell they want to know more, which probably means they know more about you than you realize they know. Let's never fool yourself that you live in a secret. People know much more about us than we realize. They just have a lot more misconception about it. But you could always say, look, I'm heading for the meeting. If you want to know more, we could talk later. You could ask me. And then you answer the simple truth. And for many people, this we attract such religious people in this program. I share with them, you don't have to go into, I masturbate every 10 minutes and I watch pornography. All you got to do is say, you know, I want not only the Bible in my external life, I wanted it in my mind, too. And I go to meetings that help me with that. Now, I'll tell you a story. A man with very long-term sobriety. <laughs> and we were sober about, he was sober about three years at the time. I was a year or two ahead, I guess, of sobriety. And he was invited to go talk to the Titan football team in Nashville to talk about his program. And he started talking about how he, while masturbating, shoot up with Ivy Robitussin and all kinds of things. Let me tell you, they were in shock. He was never invited back again. That's not what they were asking for. They were asking, hey, I've had problems in my life with perhaps pornography or with lust, and this program's been very helpful for me. What would you say for AA? Everyone where I live here knows I'm in AA. First of all, I don't drink alcohol, and they're always serving alcohol. Everyone knows that I don't, they automatically say, yeah, don't get Harvey. Where are you going, Harvey? Oh, I'm going off to one of my meetings. 
Sometimes I get meetings in Iran and people ask me, how come you're talking Iran because the time I mentioned something? I said, oh, I just give these talks all over. If they want more information, one woman did say to me, were you sexually abused as a child? Out of nowhere, she said it. And I said, yeah, many times, including physical abuse, I've been stabbed and stuff. But yeah, she never asked me again. <laughs> We're not that important. People really don't give a shit. <laughs> Only in our own mind are we so important. To thine own self be true. And um, if I hadn't let the manager of our retirement center know I'm an AA, he wouldn't have then been able to tell me about this guy where I live who's having trouble drinking, was in AA. And I started driving him to AA meetings for a while. But I can't answer this because there is no answer other than to thine own self be true. This is, this is not a work manual where everything is dotted and you have exact answers. But you know, you talk to your sponsor about it, talk to other people, and you look around to see who has long-term comfortable sobriety or not. That's it, everyone. next week I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve the best source for experience, strength and hope for SA members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.